Welcome to Six Feet from Normal, a new podcast dedicated to covering untold stories of the coronavirus pandemic. Brought to you by reporters at Medill News Service. I'm Sarah Wilson. I'm Alec Bose. And I'm Joe Snell. On today's episode, we'll talk to Caitlin Bohannon, a woman preparing to give birth in the time of COVID. Caitlin talks to us about trying out virtual mommy classes, how her pregnancy plans have changed, and how she fears her husband may not be allowed in the delivery room when she gives birth. We'll also hear from Dr. Rashmi Rao, a high-risk doctor in obstetrics and gynecology at UCLA Health, who will help us better understand what to expect when you're expecting during a pandemic. Later, we will be speaking with Sylvia Martelli, a Medill student who has had to make some tough decisions to make the most of her education. So stick around. According to the CDC, more than 3.5 million women will give birth this year. And in the era of coronavirus, millions of mothers and couples are adjusting to life under the new normal. Caitlin Bohannon from Charlottesville, Virginia, is one such mother wrestling with these challenges. We recently caught up with Caitlin to get her perspective on all of this. Caitlin, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, of course. First off, I guess, what is your due date? And then what are your daily challenges that you're facing during this outbreak? So I live in Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm due on June 5th, so I'm just about 33 weeks pregnant. You know, I feel pretty good, like physically, at the same time. Some of the um, small challenges I feel like I face every day can be like going to work. So I'm a uh, genetic counselor in our uh, cancer center at our hospital. And so I still go to work five days a week in our cancer center. From that, you know, like a day-to-day perspective, it's, it's not so bad because compared to other people who have been in their homes for the last five weeks, you know, I get to get out and still see my coworkers. And it seems like I'm still, you know, doing my daily routine. But sometimes I get looks. I feel like people see me and I'm obviously pregnant. And I feel like I get these weird looks like, why are you out here? You should be at home. And it's like, I know, but I have a job to do. Hi, Caitlin. Joe Snell here. What are some of the steps you're taking to prepare to give birth during this pandemic, and how have your plans changed? Yeah, so I'm a very kind of type A person. (laughs) I felt like all of a sudden I went from I'm a very prepared person with a plan to, oh my gosh, my whole plan has been changed. And I had a little, told my husband, I had a little mini meltdown when I went to my office the April 1st and I changed my calendar over from March to April and I had seen all the like pregnancy related things I had written down for all the days and things that we were going to do to prepare for childbirth and then when I realized that half of these or more than half of these were not going to happen or they were going to be in a different way than I had wanted I got really upset (laughs) this is my first baby I know nothing about delivering a baby I need to prepare. I'm not one of those people that just likes to wing it. And so that was really hard for me for a couple days. Um, But since I've gotten over that and, you know, I have my little pity party, you know, my husband being the sweet guy that he is, you know, we watch YouTube videos all the time. You can learn how to do anything on YouTube, including how to have a baby. (laughs) So uh, lots of YouTube videos, uh, lots of books, um, talking to friends and some of the classes they have moved to an online way how to do that and I think I got frustrated at first I was like no I don't want to do that like that's just so different I like learning in class in person and my husband Mark was like let's just give it a try so we tried that last Wednesday and it went really really well so now I'm so much more on board so I actually wanted to ask about one of the thing uh some of the things that you missed because I remember 
you um, uh, telling me over our first call that you've had to sort of uh, cancel a few things over the last few months. Can you talk about those things and how you've uh, how those have sort of you know impacted your life? I think it really just kind of um, was a bummer regarding my expectations of pregnancy because pregnancy is really 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 um, fun at the beginning because everyone finds out you're pregnant and they're so excited and there's this little human in your belly and everyone's so obsessed with you and it's awesome and then you're pregnant for like four you know three four more months and it's kind of status quo people get used to you being pregnant and it's just like you're a normal person again which is great because sometimes a lot of attention can be a little bit much but then you get to your third trimester and you're huge and your pelvis hurts and you can't breathe because all your organs get pushed up above your belly. You're so uncomfortable. You're so out of breath. Nothing fits you. You feel like a planet. And the one thing you have to look forward to is your baby shower. You get to like dress up, feel pretty for the day and, and you know, receive gifts. And so when things got canceled, I was let down just because... My friends haven't seen me pregnant. I really wanted them to see me. I haven't seen them. I just miss my friends in general. And then um, I haven't seen my parents since like February. So no one aside from Mark has been able to feel the baby move, which that was something I really wanted other people to experience because it's the craziest thing. Like I can feel his butt. He's sitting right here. Like I can feel him. That's how big I am now. I can feel him move. I, I can feel his foot. And I wanted my friends and family to feel that, but they're not going to get to. And, you know, it was it was hard at first. Sometimes I look back and you know, I feel bad complaining about this because there are people out there that have a lot of problems and I'm very privileged. I have access to really great health care and I am healthy and the baby's healthy and my husband and I still have our jobs. Like we have so much privilege, but in terms of like my expectations and this latter half of my pregnancy, it just definitely wasn't what I was expecting. Caitlin, it's Joe again. Have there been any upsides or unique bright spots during all of this? Some unexpected bright spots. Yeah, so my coworkers are so sweet. And we, we, we were going to have a, a baby shower at work too. And when we had to cancel that, obviously, because we can't have our whole office in like a little room, they decided to do this thing called Caitlin's April Showers. <laughs> and so every day I go in the office, like someone has volunteered like, oh, that's the day that I'll bring my baby shower gift for Caitlin. So literally every single day when I go to the office, there's a baby gift. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a nice, sweet little something that I didn't expect that has definitely been a bright spot in my pregnancy so far. <laughs> One thing I heard was the challenge of come actual delivery day. And yeah. so I had heard was that there's a possibility that Mark may not be able to be in the delivery room with you. Can you talk a little bit about that yeah. and what your plans are starting to look like day of? Yeah, so that was something that I had a ton of anxiety about like two, three weeks ago because it really started in New York. And granted, New York is getting hit heavier than anywhere else in the United States right now. And they were having women come in to deliver their babies asymptomatic. And then while they were there, or by the time they had left, I guess, had found that a few of these women had COVID-19 and had exposed, you know, the, the doctor, like the, the obstetrician and the nurses and that clinical staff to COVID. And they had no idea because the patient was asymptomatic. And so they were trying to minimize 
from my understanding, the patients coming in having or carrying COVID-19. So in New York, for about two to three weeks, they were not allowing women to have anyone with them during labor and delivery. So they had to go in there by themselves and they would leave and then um, they could like dad or partner or family or whoever could see the baby. So these women were literally delivering their babies on their own. Granted, they had their doctors and nurses, but without a support person, that to me just seems so out of control. (laughs) Luckily right now, my hospital does not have that policy. My hospital is allowing every woman delivering to have one person with them, whether that's dad, partner, one support person. That could change because from the projections... They say that for Charlottesville, we should be hitting our heaviest COVID-19 time from what they estimate is about um, the end of May. And since I'm due June 5th, that's like right in the window where I could deliver. Um, So things could absolutely change. Okay, Caitlin, I have to ask, what would you say to mothers who are about to go through a similar experience to what you're going through? Try to focus on the positives, but also give yourself those moments to be upset and kind of like grieve the little losses that you've had along the way because if you don't at the end you could be really frustrated about feeling you know uh, an entire feeling about your entire pregnancy when really it's just only been this short amount of time and there have been so many other great parts of pregnancy that I've really enjoyed and I'm so grateful to have and those outweigh all of these. Caitlin, we really enjoyed hearing from you. Thanks again for joining us and keep us updated about your experience. Of course, you guys are so great. Thanks for doing this. While mothers like Caitlin are figuring out the best ways to prepare for pregnancy, hospitals and healthcare specialists are working to do the same. To help us understand these challenges, Sarah and Alec spoke with Dr. Rashmi Rao, a professor and practicing OBGYN at UCLA's Medical Center. Dr. Rao, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Doing great. Can we just start with you introducing yourself and explaining your role at UCLA? Sure. I am one of the maternal fetal medicine specialists. My official title is I am the assistant clinical professor. How has this COVID pandemic most dramatically changed what you've been doing as a doctor and with your own practice? Okay, yeah, that's a that's a really good question. The COVID-19 has really changed, I think, all of our practices, all physicians' practices drastically. Um, I'll start with talking about the outpatient setting. From an outpatient setting, we have drastically reduced our volume. So in the clinics, we're only seeing patients who are deemed to be kind of medical necessity Um, We're trying to postpone some of the, what we would call elective or non-urgent medical visits. And the way we've been doing that is kind of looking weeks in advance and going through all of our schedules and making sure that people who can be delayed by four to six weeks are delayed. And we're using kind of four to six week increments to hopefully, I mean, not that we know that in four to six weeks things will be better, but we're just readdressing on a four to six week basis and just using those people that we think can wait perhaps that long. Within that time frame, it would be people who are not considered to be needing emergent or urgent care. From a physician standpoint, are looking through our schedules and making sure things are postponed if they can be, and that's to reduce the volume so that there's not people waiting in the waiting room um, and then, you know, possibly infecting each other while they're waiting. And it's also to kind of decrease just the general exposure to everyone, including, 
the clinic staff and the physicians and, um, you know, everyone. We've also drastically changed the visitor policy, both inpatient and outpatient, specifically from an outpatient standpoint. You know, women were routinely, they'd bring um, partners, uh, parents, friends sometimes to their to their visits, and that would be uh, totally acceptable pre-COVID era. In the COVID era, we're actually requiring that they don't bring any visitors with them or no partners with them. Um, we are allowing them to FaceTime. We're allowing them to record, which is uh, not our usual policy. But, of course, we're trying to not be um, too inhumane about it. Not allowing visitors, that must put a lot of stress on expecting mothers and expecting couples. How are you helping them manage that? Um, it most certainly is. I've been pregnant now twice myself, so I can only um, imagine what that must feel like. Um, I think it's very isolating. Um, it's very scary. Some of the things that I hadn't addressed yet is that, you know, even upon entry into the building and then again up at our clinic, there are greeters who are screening them, one with a temperature check and also with symptom questions. So it all becomes very medicalized and sciency. And I think it's for people who have been lucky enough to be kind of isolated at home and, and trying to live some sort of normal life, you know, walking into an environment where everything is so protocolized and frankly, something out of a movie um, is really not what people expect when they're thinking about going to the doctors, especially to have a baby. Um, mm-hmm. For all intents and purposes, although I deal with high-risk pregnancies, um, for all intents and purposes, pregnancy while you need a physician to kind of care for you, it's not what people typically think of as going to the doctors. It's not to go to the doctors because they're sick. And I think in the last decade or so, we've actually spent a long time trying to make this as as normal as possible in the sense that we want people to have an experience where they feel like this is not super medicalized. And so this is kind of going against all of the things that most people are expecting um, when they envision an experience about um, having a birth. Thank you, Dr. Rao. Alec here. Speaking of screening, you were talking about uh, mothers coming in um, and uh, screening them as greeters, and you didn't want to make the process as medicalized, but what are some of those large risks that can come from this coronavirus era to expecting mothers? For example, what happens if a mother does, in fact, test positive for COVID-19? What should they do? So that is a good question. You know, in previous eras with other viral epidemics, the pregnant woman would get hit pretty hard. And what I mean by that is that when a woman gets sick, even with the flu, even with a regular flu, pregnant women tend to have a more severe course of disease, which is why we always encourage, even in pregnancy, that every woman gets a flu shot because our pregnant cohort tends to be a more at-risk cohort. What we're seeing with COVID is that it is not currently looking like the pregnant women, that population of, of people are being hit harder than the general public. On one hand, that's reassuring. It also doesn't mean that, you know, we have no concern if you get sick and you tend to be that small percentage, even in the general population. If you are end up being in that, in that small population that does get very sick, that is going to have dire consequences for both the mom and the baby. COVID is something that is affecting lungs in the sense that when it gets severe, it causes issues with breathing. It causes issues with oxygenation. Um, And one of the big tenets is that if mom is not oxygenating well, neither is the baby. If you are, and you know, some of the things we have seen in China and in some of our other cohorts that are being hit quite hard, like New York, is that women will run into issues where they might need an emergency C-section if the oxygenation can't be optimized for mom. And so that's obviously not a situation that I would want pregnant women to be in. 
Yeah, and, la and last thing from me, and then I'm going to hand it off to Sarah, because you mentioned uh, New York, and uh, at that it was actually how we came across this story was the expecting mother that we talked to was pretty anxious about the uh, childbirthing process and the procedures that were coming out of some of the hospitals in New York, where the father wasn't even allowed in the birthing room at the time. And I know you mentioned some of how your practice has changed during this era, but can you talk about that specifically of restricting the number of people that are in the delivery room and how your practice is um, dealing with that now? Yeah. And um, so New York, you know, is obviously hit real hard in terms of just the number of people who have COVID and which is why they're taking social distancing kind of right into the hospital and, and to the individual rooms. And so on one hand, I absolutely understand the need or necessity to do that. Um, on the flip side of it, I will tell you that um, this is probably um, one of those rare um, situations where I think visitors um, should be allowed and need to be allowed. Where I practice, we have severely limited visitors to the hospital itself, but there are there are visitors who are allowed to both the maternal floors and the pediatric floors. So that means that patients are allowed to come with a visitor who is screened negative, um, meaning that they don't have any symptoms. You know, each hospital is different here in where I practice, which is in the Southern California region. Um, some hospitals are requiring that the partners leave um, after the delivery so that they don't increase the exposure as they get transferred to another unit, which is the postpartum unit. And again, that's just to reduce risk, uh, exposure risk. Um, other hospitals are allowing the partners to stay for the, the entire time and other, and even other um, facilities are talking about testing, um, universal testing for everybody, including partners. Um, so that they can stay for the entire visit, but so that you can be, you know, if you've got increased testing capabilities, then you can be as safe as possible for everybody involved. How can an expecting couple best protect themselves against COVID-19 right now? Yeah, I think that listening to um, exactly what the CDC is saying is the best way to go right now. Um, although there's been a lot of talk of, you know, maybe easing up on some of the restrictions, I and I think every medical professional out there people who are on the front lines and seeing how easy it is to um, transmit this and, and what the, the downstream effects of that are would say that, you know, we need to continue social distancing until we either have a cure, a vaccination, or some sort of treatment. But as of right now, we don't, we're not there yet. And so to open up the, to open up our society again um, is only going to increase the chances that we're going to end up in a situation where multiple people are exposed and then that exposure just carries downstream and we're back to right where we started from. So the best way to protect yourselves at this point would be really to stay at home, continue hand washing, vigilant hand washing. We are currently wearing masks when we go outside and if that's not an ordinance where um, you guys are located, I would highly recommend that you wear a mask and you stay six feet away from other people, especially at larger gatherings. Thank you so much. We really appreciate this, Dr. Rao. Yeah, no, my pleasure. If you guys need anything moving forward, just feel free to reach out. Like much of society, we as journalism students have had to make a lot of changes to how we learn, report, and live our lives. Our classmate, Sylvia Martelli, recently published a moving essay in Stat News about the challenges she is facing as an international student in Washington. 
living far from her family in Milan where COVID-19 has been raging. Now that she's back in Italy, Joe Snell recently caught up with her to see how she's managing. It's early on Thursday morning in Treviglio, a town half an hour outside of Milan, and Sylvie Mortelli is quietly sneaking out of her bedroom window to surprise her mother during breakfast. I went around the house and I surprised her from outside the window in the kitchen and I just waved at her. And it was funny. I mean, it was also pretty sad because, you know, we were seeing each other through a window. But at least I got to see her and she got to see me. And I mean, she had breakfast. I watched her have breakfast. But that was definitely a weird and fun interaction, if we want to put it like that. Interaction was one of the first that Sylvia and her mother had enjoyed together in months. Sylvia is approaching her final quarter of graduate school in Washington, D.C. Or at least she was, until the coronavirus pandemic gripped the world. Right before classes began in April, Sylvia made the difficult decision to postpone her education and to return home to Italy. You know, when you're an international student, no matter how old you are, you know that you're by yourself. So I was in the United States by myself. You know, I have friends and everything, but you're still by yourself. And you know that if something goes wrong, you need to sort it out. And in the middle of a pandemic, that is definitely scary. I decided to push my graduation date by three months because this would give me some more time to find a job and just really have the industry kind of going back to where it was and hopefully having higher chances of getting employed. And so on Tuesday morning in a nearly empty airport, Sylvia embarked on a harrowing 24-hour adventure that would take her from DC to New Jersey and to Frankfurt before finally returning home to Italy. My main concern was will I actually be able to get to Europe? Because I decided to take the quarter off pretty late. It was around the 10th of April. And at that point, I had already, you know, put all the travel bans in place. Italy had a few planes just to repatriate people. But at that point, they were all full, so I wouldn't be able to take one of those. And I knew that I would have to just go through standard flights. Because I had so many layovers, I was concerned that things would go wrong in at least one of these three different flights and I would be stuck somewhere and have to quarantine in some of the military barracks there. But fortunately, Sylvia was able to make it out of D.C. The first leg of her trip took her to Newark Airport in New Jersey. She described the airport experience as surreal. Nearly empty corridors and closed shops and restaurants She had another seven-hour layover at the airport before she was able to board her next flight to Frankfurt. And it was in this moment, as Sylvia prepared to board, that she noticed some of the airline's more drastic safety measures. They started letting us on the plane a couple of hours before because they had to check that everyone trying to get to Europe had an actual reason to do so and mainly was allowed to do so. So they announced that anyone who wouldn't have a proof that they were living in Europe wouldn't be allowed on the plane. So there were a couple of Americans who couldn't prove that they were going to Europe because there were residents there, so they weren't allowed on the plane. So I got on the plane and we were all kept far away from each other, so there was no one sitting next to each other. They would leave one sitting between people. 
and then the whole flight was very different. So the um, flight assistants weren't really around. They were mailing their seats. You know, they usually serve you snacks and so on, and they didn't do that. As they approached Frankfurt, Sylvia was given a form from the German government requesting her contact information. This was in case there was an outbreak of the virus on the plane. Finally, after nearly eight-hour flight, the plane landed. Passengers were released in groups of 40, and police officers waited for them at the gate. Sylvia recalls Frankfurt as more relaxed than D.C. and Newark, with more travelers in her terminal and shops still open. But there was an eeriness to the whole situation. It was still awfully quiet. I've never seen anything like that in a major airport. And Frankfurt is really a major city for flights in Europe. After another eight-hour layover, one-hour flight, more paperwork to fill out, and even going through a device that takes your temperature, Sylvia finally arrived home to Italy. I got out from the airport, and I'm used to having my parents waiting for me. And, you know, only my mom could come because there is a law in Italy that doesn't allow two people to be in the same car. So only my mom could come. So I got to the car and my mom couldn't get out from the car. So I put in my bags and then I got in the car and we put down the windows and try not to speak because, you know, there are fears that even just by speaking, you can pass the virus. Especially when you're international, you really look forward to seeing your parents and those moments are just so precious and valuable and they're very few. Now, Sylvia sits in quarantine. For the next 14 days, she and her parents each live in separate quarters of their home. They will eat meals separately, Sylvia will avoid places like the kitchen, and they even have to resort to Skype to catch up. Being in the same house and not being able to see them, because, I mean, we're, we're Skyping, so we're, we're talking to each other, but, you know, Skyping in the same house is pretty weird. Uh, but I know it's for the best, and I'm going to stay in my bedroom because I don't want to expose them to the virus in case I have it. So it's a difficult choice, but it's for a good reason. It's sad to see my country in this current situation, but I'm still glad that I'm here and not so far away from my family and my country at the moment. Thanks for joining us for our first episode of Six Feet From Normal. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast. Tune in next week as we continue to report the untold stories from this pandemic. So in the meantime, be sure to visit our website, nationalsecurityzone.medill.northwestern.edu backslash COVID analyzer. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Medill on the Hill. Until next time, I'm Sarah Wilson. I'm Alec Bose. And I'm Joe Snell. Take care and stay safe, everyone.